invite you to close your eyes for a few moments. Whether you're here in the building or joining us over Zoom, to close your eyes. I know that could be uncomfortable, don't worry. Uh, it won't be long before I ask you to open them again. Just a few minutes. Let's, uh, let's forget the familiarity of this lovely building or of home, if that's where you are. Let's close our eyes and imagine ourselves elsewhere. It is the city of Rome in the year 66. A little over 30 years have passed since the death and the resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem. Word of his life, death and resurrection has spread from Jerusalem to the far corners of the empire. And we, a group of men and women, young and old, rich and poor, slave and free, have heard this news and have come to believe Jesus, crucified, raised, ascended, was the Son of God. And we have gathered here this afternoon a company of believers in the back room of a house at an address we dare not disclose to share a meal and to be instructed by our brother Mark, servant of the church, a leader among God's people, who was himself instructed by the great fathers of the faith, Barnabas, Paul, Peter. Almost two years ago, on the night of June the 18th in the year 64, a great fire had broken out, lasting six days and seven nights, destroying ten of the fourteen regions of the city. Rumors abounded that Emperor Nero himself had set the fires. He had gone mad in recent years, and many believed he wanted to destroy the city and rebuild it in his own design for his own glory. The emperor had tried his best to squash the rumors, but it soon became clear that he wouldn't be able to unless there was someone else to blame. Now, as it happened, of the four sections of the city that had not burned, two were mainly inhabited by Jews and Christians. The emperor chose the Christians to bear the blame. Roman historian Tacitus tells the story. In spite of every human effort, of all the emperor's attempts and sacrifices made to the gods, nothing sufficed to allay suspicion, nor to destroy the opinion that the fire had been ordered. Therefore, in order to destroy this rumor, Nero blamed the Christians, who are hated for their abominations, and punished them with refined cruelty. Christ, from whom they take their name, was executed by Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius. Stopped for a moment, this evil superstition reappeared, not only in Judea, where was the root of the evil, but also in Rome, where all things sordid and abominable from every corner of the world come together. Thus, first those who confessed that they were Christians were arrested, and on the basis of their testimony, a great number were condemned, although not so much for the fire itself as for their hatred of humankind. Before killing the Christians, Nero used them to amuse the people. Some were dressed in furs to be killed by dogs. Others were crucified. Still others were set on fire early in the night so that they might illuminate You may open your eyes now, look up with me. That was the context in which the first readers, the first hearers of Mark's Gospel heard it. 
Those were the days in which they lived. That was the nearness of the danger of being a Christian. So with that background in mind, what are Mark's final words to the church in Rome? He's told the story of the long-promised Messiah, the Christ who came, the King of God's kingdom, who against all expectations gave his life on a Roman cross and in so doing showed himself to be the very Son of God. Now what more is there to say? Why these final words? What did Mark want this persecuted church in Rome to know? What does the Holy Spirit today want KCC to know, to believe, to do? Well, if if you've been with us on our journey through Mark's Gospel these past months, the answer will be no surprise to you. From the beginning, Mark's message has had two sharp edges to it. Who is he? And what does it mean to follow him? Well, we know now that the first question could only be fully answered at the cross. Truly, this man was the Son of God. And just like the first question could only be fully answered at the cross, so the second question, what does it mean to follow him, can only be fully answered after the cross. So what does it look like to be a faithful follower of Jesus? That's what this final section is about. So let's look to our Bibles and find out. If you were with us some weeks ago, you might remember I explained that Mark makes story sandwiches. That is, he starts off telling one story, then he interrupts it with another story, and then he goes back to finish the first one. So the beginning of the first story is like one slice of bread, the end is like the other slice, and in the middle is the the cheese and ham, the filling. And altogether they make up one story sandwich. If you take it apart, you won't get it, you'll misunderstand. You need to see the story as one whole sandwich. So look in your Bibles and scan with me from chapter 15 and verse 40. Uh, I want to just point out the story sandwich to you so that you can see it there, and then we'll ask what it means. So, from verse 40. You see, Mark begins to tell us something about a group of women, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. Verses 40 and 41 are about those women. That's the first slice of bread. Then from verse 42 to 47, Mark interrupts the story of the women to tell us about a man called Joseph of Arimathea before returning to the story of the women from verse 1 of chapter 16. Do you see the story sandwich? The women who follow Jesus are the two slices of bread and the story about Joseph is the filling. Together they make one story sandwich. And what is that story about? It's about following Jesus. Joseph, uh, the other gospel writers tell us, had become a disciple of Jesus. And he gives us one picture of following Jesus, but it's incomplete. And the three women, Mary, Mary, and Salome, were also followers of Jesus. And they give us another picture, which by itself is also incomplete. But the two pictures together, Joseph and the three women, give us a full picture of what it means to follow Jesus on this side of the cross. We'll begin with Joseph. It was early Friday evening. Jesus had breathed his last around three o'clock in the afternoon. And verse 42 says that 
As evening approached, in other words, just before sunset, it's only two or three hours after, after Jesus had died, Joseph went to Pilate, the Roman governor, to ask for the body of Jesus. And that was very risky. The Romans would usually leave crucified criminals hanging on the cross even after they, they died, which, remember, ordinarily took days. They would still leave them there until they decayed, until the birds ate them. As a warning to others, don't mess with Rome. Look at verse 43. Joseph, and this is towards the end of the verse, Joseph took courage or went boldly to Pilate to ask for Jesus' body. Well, to ask for the body of a man who has just been executed for treason, to identify yourself as a friend to a convicted enemy of the state, that was very risky. It would have been one thing for Jesus' mother to ask for the body. Pilate would have understood that, but even, even she doesn't. Joseph took a very real risk in identifying with Jesus when he didn't need to. Nothing compelled him to come out and make his allegiance to Jesus known. Joseph had become a disciple in secret. He had everything to lose. He was a rich man, a member of the Jewish council. He had money, he had property, he had position, he had reputation, he had respect, social influence, cultural power. He had a lot and a lot to lose. And without a doubt, after this, he did lose much of it. And he was not a naturally bold man. John tells us in his gospel that he was afraid of the Jewish leaders. But Joseph didn't let fear have the final word. He came out of the shadows and made his allegiance known at great personal cost. What motivated him? What overcame his natural fear? Well, verse 43 tells us, he was looking for, waiting for, the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Well, a kingdom over time reflects the character of its king. Joseph was waiting for the kingdom that reflected the character of God. He was looking for all that was lost in the Garden of Eden. He was looking for God's kingdom. A kingdom of justice and of peace and of joy. Um, in his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, 
which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. That was Joseph. He was looking for that true country in which every good and righteous and holy desire would be satisfied. Well, friend, what are you waiting? What are you waiting for? What are you looking for? Do you long for wholeness, sense of purpose, of justice and rightness in the world? Or isn't that just longing for a little bit of the kingdom? Joseph found the kingdom breaking into this world, to this broken world. The true ambassador from the true country came and made open the way. And that was worth any price. Whoever would save his life would lose it, Jesus had said. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? Joseph was looking for the kingdom come, for the true country. And he found the satisfaction of every true and good and righteous and holy desire in the king of that kingdom. And for that he was willing to forfeit all he had in the world. Now Joseph is the, the average nobody disciple. He's not an apostle, he's not an evangelist, he didn't plant any churches, he didn't write any books. We know nothing about him other than that all his hopes and affections were fixed on Jesus and that he was willing to lose for Jesus. But Joseph is only one part of the story sandwich. Now, let's see about those three women, Mary, Mary, and Salome. Go back to verse 41 of chapter 15, and notice what Mark tells us. When Jesus had been in Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. When Jesus had been in Galilee. Now, throughout Mark's gospel... Jerusalem has always been the center of opposition to Jesus. Do you remember in chapter 3, verse 22, for example, the scribes who came from Jerusalem accused Jesus of operating by the power of demons. In chapter 7, verse 1, the Pharisees and the scribes who came from Jerusalem challenged Jesus when his disciples didn't wash their hands according to their traditions. In chapter 10, verse 33, Jesus told his disciples... We're going up to Jerusalem, and there, in Jerusalem, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. When Jesus was in Galilee, these women followed him closely, cared for his needs. But now they're in Jerusalem, the center of hostility to Jesus, and verse 41, they stood away at a distance and watched Fear had begun to take hold. Now skip ahead to chapter 16. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's not in the tomb. He's not where they left his body. And they knew they were in the right tomb. The last verse of chapter 15 tells us they saw where he was laid. They were there when the tomb was sealed. 
But now the tomb is empty, apart from an angel who speaks to them. Now follow verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now just notice carefully how Mark piles up these words. They were alarmed, trembling, bewildered. They fled away, frightened to silence. And that completes Mark's portrait of faithful discipleship. Three women, commissioned by an angel from heaven to go and tell the disciples of the resurrection, and they run away, trembling in fear, silent. The great news remains untold. Endings matter, don't they? We, we sense that intuitively. When you watch a movie or read a book, you know when the final scene has arrived because you can just feel this is the right ending to the story. Beauty kisses the beast, true love breaks the curse, life is restored to the castle, and they live happily ever after. And you know you've reached the end. Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy at last understand one another, confess their love, get married, and go to live at Pemberley. And you know you've reached the end. The ring of power is finally destroyed in the fires of Mount Doom. Sauron is defeated, his armies vanquished, and the people of Middle-earth are free to live in peace. And you know you've reached the end. The ending fits the story. And we have a sense that all is resolved. Turn back with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Verse 1. The beginning of the good news, the gospel of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus' identity is declared and immediately followed by, Behold, I send my messenger, one crying out, calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Identity, proclamation. Now turn back to chapter 16. Who do you say he is? The great question of the gospel. You are the Christ, Peter declared in chapter 8. The Son of God, the centurion confessed in chapter 15 at the cross. And here at the end of chapter 16, at the end of the story, where are the witnesses? Who will proclaim it? Who takes the place of the messenger of chapter 1? Who will cry out in the wilderness? Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Beauty hasn't kissed the beast. Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy are still at odds. Evil still terrorizes Middle Earth. The story is left unfinished. The ending is all wrong. Why? Why did Mark leave it like this? Well, let's return to where we started this afternoon. A little band of believers and a very real life and death threat in the city of Rome in the year 66. And we now know that those three women did not remain silent. We know they overcame their fear and that they did deliver the message. 
How do we know that? Because news of Jesus' resurrection did get to the disciples. And from them to all Jerusalem and to Israel and to the furthest reaches of the empire. That's how it got to us. Our little church here in Rome traces its existence, at least in terms of human agency, to the fact that those three women, bewildered and trembling with fear, found the courage to speak. Mark's challenge to us as followers of Jesus is this. Will you let fear silence you? Or will you be the missing messenger at the end of the story? In each generation there will be reasons to fear. Just as the women feared, so the church at Rome had good reason to fear. Nero was on the hunt for them. Torture and death were real possibilities. When they finished breakfast in the morning and kissed their children goodbye as they went to school, they knew they might not be there to welcome them home. That might have been the last kiss goodbye. That very night their children might have seen them, oiled and aflame, nailed to a post beside a road. Likewise, right now, in our generation, right here in England, the risks to those who identify with Jesus are real and increasing. Through the series in Mark, we've tried to gain a realistic sense of the times we live in. We live on a battlefield. We do not live in times of peace, at least not in the spiritual realm. If you have not reckoned with the possibility that you may lose your job, be excluded from your profession, even end up in jail for holding to the clear teaching and doctrines of the Bible, then you just aren't paying attention. Where will courage come from? Where will we find the resolve to faithfulness? Well, just where these three women did, in following Jesus and trusting his words. In the darkest moment of his life, in the darkest moment of all eternity, Jesus cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was quoting the first verse of Psalm 22. But Jesus knew that the cross would not be the end of his story. He quoted the first verse of one psalm, but he knew that the last verse of the very next psalm, so well known to us, says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He knew he was not abandoned, not ultimately forsaken. He knew what awaited him on the other side of the cross. And if we are united with him, if our lives are bound in his, then when we take up our crosses and follow him, we must also look beyond verse 1 of Psalm 22 and lay hold of the, of the promise of Psalm 23. Surely the Lord's goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And beyond the days of this life, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Look beyond the crosses you must bear 
and see with the eyes of faith your dwelling place in the house of the Lord and trust his words. Just hours before the cross, Jesus had told his disciples, Mark 14, 27, you will all fall away, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And in the hours following, they did all fall away. They all fled in fear. But he kept his promise. He did rise. And here at the end of Mark's Gospel, verse 7 of chapter 16, the angel tells the woman, But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And that's exactly what he did. He met them in Galilee. He kept his promise. In Mark 1 verse 8, it was promised that he would baptize his followers with the Holy Spirit. And these Christians in Rome knew that he had kept that promise. For they themselves had experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He kept his promise. Mark chapter 1 verse 15, he had promised that he would make the disciples fishers of men. And that's exactly what he did. These Christians in Rome knew that thousands had come into the kingdom by the preaching of those first disciples. Some were there that day at Pentecost when Peter, by the power of the Spirit, had caught 3,000 for the kingdom in one afternoon. Jesus kept his promise. And he is still keeping his every promise today. So will we be faithful, church? Will we be like Joseph and own a crucified king, even in moments of great personal cost? Will we be like the three women who overcame fear by trust in his word? This is true discipleship. Whether you are rich, powerful, influential, important, like Joseph, or unimportant, with no social platform or cultural or institutional power, like the three women. Wherever you rank by the measures of this world, will you own Jesus? Will you hold to his teaching, to the doctrines of the Bible? The final thing Mark says of Jesus, by the mouth of a messenger angel from heaven itself, Look at verse 7 of chapter 16. Make sure you see this with your own eyes. He is going ahead of you. You will see him just as he told you. He will keep his word, church. He will do as he told you. Heaven stakes its name on it. Mark began his gospel with these words. The beginning of the gospel. The beginning of the good news. Some have theorized that Mark was killed, martyred, before he was able to finish writing, and that's why there's this awkward ending to the gospel. But we see now that this was no accident. The end of Mark's gospel is not unresolved. The end of Mark's gospel is a question to you. What will you do with this news? You know who he is. He is the Son of God. You know what following him means. 
What now will you do? Will you be a faithful disciple, a follower and a teller? Will you be like Joseph, of whom the world knows nothing but that you were devoted to Jesus at whatever cost? Will you be like the three women who overcame fear, looking beyond the cross of Psalm 22 to the dwelling place of Psalm 23, trusting in the words of Jesus and telling the news? You are the end of Mark's story. What will you do with this gospel? In chapter 14, verse 25, Jesus told his disciples that one day he would drink wine with them again at the table of the great feast in the kingdom of God. He has kept his every word. He will keep this one too. We will share that table with him. We will eat and drink with him. If we are faithful. What will you do with this gospel? Why don't you bow your hearts with me as I pray. Father, by your Spirit at work in our hearts, would you overcome our natural fears? Would you open the eyes of our hearts to see what awaits us on the other side? An eternal dwelling in the kingdom of our King. Sharing at his table. A reward no one can take from us. A joy beyond description. Would you be at work in our hearts to make us faithful? Open eyes now, right here to see Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God who gave his life on the cross to bear the judgment of God for the people of God. Give us courage to take this message and tell it that you would be glorified, that Christ would be known, that we might hear those words. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter now into your reward. Amen.